Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sitting next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming back. Choices Not Chances. Man, we got a good one for you today. Today, we have a guest with a story that has not been expressed on this show to date. To tell the story correctly, though, we have to go back to 2010. I was in Marja with my guys, and the fight was raging on. We had received word that we would soon have a key leaders on deck from 2-9, and the rip-toe would, would commence. A rip-toe is a relief-in-place transition of authority. And generally what happens is we have some incoming unit send some of their key leaders out. They go out with us, who have been there for a while, and then their main element comes in, ours goes out. Our key element stays back, runs some patrols with them, some familiarity patrols with the AO, with their guys, and then ultimately my guy, you know, myself and the other key leaders will leave, and 2-9 will, will tr- take, the, take the authority. And so that's what we had going on. At the same time, though, 1-6, who was just south of us, will be con- conducting their rip as well. The new squad leaders and team leaders and key elements from 2-6 Echo Company fell in and were set to conduct right seat patrols with 1-6. The news came to me as I was picketing the main supply route into northern Marja. The command team had showed up. They brought food and chow, and they brought news. News letting us know that the fight wasn't over and to stay frosty. They let us know that one of the RIP patrols for 1-6 got hit, and two of the incoming squad leaders were killed. I remember thinking what it would be like to not even have the main element in and you're already using the succession of command and what it would be like to be that APL or that team leader that's going to assume command. We conducted our rip tow and left Afghanistan, but I'd always thought about the way the 2-6 team leader assumed command. Today we have Stuart Blackwell on the show. He was the 2-9 team leader who assumed command for the push into Marja. We have the pleasure of picking his mind about not only that experience, but his life experience and his experiences thereafter. Stu Blackwell, welcome to the show. Stu Blackwell, welcome to the show, man. Hey, man, thanks for having me. It's good to be here, brother. Yeah, so talking in the monologue, um, you're the first guest that I've had on my show to, you know, to assume a squad um, through succession of command. And so I want to dive into that. But first, I ask some pointed questions uh, to my guests coming up. Um, more for me, more for understanding leadership, where leaders come from uh, and how that works. And, and your family has pretty impeccable line of leaders in it. Uh, so I want to understand more of that. I know I was able to meet your brother um, who received the Hubert Award trophy for being the best gunner or, or the, you know, notable and got pictures with him at the ground award ceremony. And so you have a, you have a, uh, a lineage, let's say, or a bloodline of leaders. And I want to know what that early life starts, starts looking like, like parents in the house, um, religion, siblings. Um, so we'll just kind of start there. How did you grow up? Where did you grow up? 
So I grew up in uh, roundabouts, Memphis, Tennessee area. Um, my brother is, you've already mentioned him, he's somewhat of the trailblazer. Uh, so going back a little bit, uh, my grandfather, um, my father's father on his side, actually, he served in the Navy during Korea um, on the USS Wisconsin. Okay. Um, he never spoke about it. Um, and he passed when I was young ish, I want to say around 11 to 13 range or so. Um, so we never really got into that. Um, but my father did not serve. Um, and then my brother was somewhat of the trailblazer, you know, so he, he graduated high school and obviously I idolized him, uh, growing up. I also had an older sister, so I'm the baby of the family. And we were raised in, I wouldn't say a, a strict Christian home, but a, a home where everybody knew what the core values of the family were. They were based on the word of God. They were based on, in, in that religion. Um, and my parents loved us. They've been married for <laughs> well over 30 years now, uh, which is a rarity these days, sad to say, but true. You know, so I had, I had a very good childhood. I did. Uh, my parents showed us by example what it was to work hard for everything that you want. Hmm. And uh, that example has shaped me and both of my siblings uh, significantly. You know, so uh, Phil, as you mentioned, he was the first Marine in the family. Um, he graduated high school and went on to play college ball at a small university called Lambeth which is in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, is no longer a, a private institution. Um, so I guess that kind of makes him sound like a fossil a bit. But uh, yeah, he joined after that. He started out as a reservist with uh, Kilo 323 and then went to Iraq for their first deployment. And about that time, I had enlisted out of high school in 2007 and um, ended up at 2-6 for my first unit. And uh, that was the first time that I got to see him together when we were both Marines, uh, which is pretty rad. He was coming back from his first combat pump, and I was a fresh-faced boot. Uh, <laughs> didn't know anything at all about anything. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I, I know a um, little bit different. My little brother was in the, uh, my little brother was in the National Guard, and, and he, did, um, he did, like, air security. He fired, like, missiles from a truck after counter battery would identify it, you know, kind of thing. And so he did a pump over to Afghanistan though, um, a few years back and before he got out and, and when he came home, it was, it was cool. It was rad to, to go there and be at his homecoming. And I was, I was used to people coming to my homecomings, you know, and, and then I got to go and, you know, experience that and share that with, with my little brother Lucas. And, and so then, then it's just like this different bond. Like now, you know, kind of a, kind of a bond and um and so that's super rad but let's let's go back um what was growing up like in, in mississippi what was uh did you play team sports and things of that uh nature oh yeah yeah so um you know i, I dabbled like most kids do when they're you know in those early phases figuring out what you like and stuff you know and uh, baseball was kind of cool and everything but you didn't really stick with it and then uh you know me and my brother discovered contact sports and that was <laughs> like that was it it's like, really? You mean I can run around on this field and I can hit people or I can go on this land people and, and stuff? I'm like, yeah. So uh, he wow. he stuck football and, uh, you know, that was my thing for a little bit uh, up until, I want to say about sophomore year of high school. And then I discovered wrestling 
Yep. And that was, that was my clear path, you know, so that's mm -hmm. where I kind of emerged from him a little bit. And, uh, that sport has been a significant aspect of my life, um, ever since and still yeah. is today. Yeah, man. It's, uh, it's always nice to go and just rough each other up out on the mat somewhere. Um, and then knowing and learning at a young age, how to control people and, and, uh, especially people that, that, that don't want you to control them. Um, I wrestled too. I dabbled a little bit in high school, but when I got out, I did some jujitsu and, uh, and still love, I love it to this day. I don't do it as much as I should, but, but it is, yeah. uh, it's awesome. And then, um, okay. So I guess let's kick forward. We've already kind of talked about the path your brother took. You're going to, uh, you're going to play some wrestling. You're going to do some football. You're going to graduate and you're going to end up in two, six echo company. Yep. Now, Anything notable to talk about from boot camp? So boot camp is like the, it, it's the, the common experience, you know, and that's why it's, it's the first thing that's usually pushed out there. Not just because chronologically it's the first thing we all go through. Sure. Um, I, the main thing to note uh, for me is while that was at the time, like that seemed like the mountaintop, you know, mm -hmm. like I, it was great, you know, actually, getting through that. Um, the first thing that I'll say is what got me through it was, you know, we mentioned parenting and the environment that I grew up in. Um, you know, like my parents were not, they were not abusive or oppressive or anything like that, but they held us to a standard. Mm. You know, loved us. They cared for us. They provided for us, but they also expected us to behave properly. And they expected us, uh, to, to do what was right. And they taught us those things through example. Um, so when I show up to recruit training and yeah, it sucks because it's supposed to suck. Mm. There's, you know, grown men crying themselves to sleep for the few hours of sleep that you get at night. And I'm not one of those dudes. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I got it, dad. I may have hated it at the time, but I get it now. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. I wrote home, uh, as much as it, it must've rubbed mom the wrong way was the dad to say, thank you for, for actually quote unquote, being hard on me, yeah. you know, actually, um, he was just teaching me how to be a man, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it really did pay dividends. Uh, the second thing that I would say is, you know, kind of in the vein of where we started, um, that seems like the pinnacle, but as an infantryman, um, and what I've found is this is a common, you know, among, among all of us, um, that's the easiest part of it all, yep. you know? You get through recruit training and yeah, you're super proud that you're, that you're a Marine now and you should be, nothing should take away from that. But once you go to SOI and you shift gears from haircuts and boot bands and basic conduct as a Marine to very macro locate, close with and destroy, it changes the game entirely. You know, yeah. there's a deeper meaning to it after that. So it starts things but it is definitely not the end all be all. And it's not the pinnacle of the overall military experience. If you're an infantryman. Yeah. If you're an infantryman is the key is, is the key note at the end of that, because I talk to a lot of veterans, right? Not always on this show, but that's, that's my whole, that's my whole vein. That's my whole, my whole platform is to, is to speak to vets, make the transitioning ones better and to speak to active duty guys and make them more lethal, you know, more savage any way that we can. And when I talk to vets that are not Marines, they have still got very fond and impactful, impressionable experiences in boot camp that always come out. And it's like, that's, it's, it's just interesting to me because then when I talk to infantry guys, they all say the same thing. Hey, yeah, dude, I don't, 
I don't really have anything from boot camp. Like it was just, it was a thing that I had to get through to get to where I wanted to be. And where I got was, there was way more impactful, impressionable memories that came from there that just pale in the comparison to yellow footprints and DIs. And um, as much as I agree with you, that is the foundation, that is the the uh, the building blocks start there. Like we have to understand discipline, we have to understand close order, um, and it and it starts there. But but like you said, I would echo the same thing. It was not. It was just a thing. It was a thing that got me to where um, where the real game started. So okay, so nothing impressionable there. So you can go to SOI. You get some you get some good uh, good training over at SOI, learning how to be an infantryman, and you land in two six. Now walk me through. You came in in 07. So you get to, you get to SOI, you get all that done. Is it the end of 07 or are we into 08 now? No, end of 07. So end of 07. Okay. By December, I was showing up to two. So I got everything done in that last half of the year. And I was at my operational unit before Christmas in 07. Check. Check. Yep. And so walk me through that. Walk me through that dropping off and coming to two six and what that experience is like for the people that don't know, especially if it's a Thursday. Uh, uh, no, actually it was a Friday. Uh, uh, I don't which... know if that's better or worse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, debatable. It depends. Uh, luckily, um, I'm trying to remember. I, there may have been some sort of holiday or some sort of event or something like that, but, uh, it was not the typical barracks block party. Okay. 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 You got a little bit, um, a little bit lucky in that regard, but there were still some remnants hanging around. I mean, obviously everybody knows that there's a boot drop coming, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, but these guys, they are fresh off of a Fallujah deployment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I had no idea what to expect mm-hmm. at all. Uh, SOI was not a cruise for me. I struggled physically. I struggled mentally. Um, and in a lot of aspects, I kind of feel like, you know, if I hadn't made the necessary internal changes, then I wouldn't have graduated that school, you know, mm-hmm. but it forced me to that critical point. So when I got the two six, uh, it was like, yeah, I made it past one more thing. And then that just went away. Like there was no, it didn't sustain my confidence or anything. Cause now I'm actually stepping in front of combat veterans yep. that lose is still a hot name at this point in time. It's only Oh seven. So you know, Ramadi's still ongoing, I believe, at this point. Could be wrong about that. Um, but it was it was a little frightening. Um, and, you know, I remember they they dropped us off and we went to the company office for a little bit, did all our admin and all that kind of stuff, grabbed yeah. all of our shit, um, stepped out several hours later. It was nightfall at this point, And you could see little pockets of people on the catwalk. <laughs> there was all sorts of alcoholic beverages everywhere being consumed and hurled in various directions. Um, you know, and someone just took up the, you know, the call the second that we stepped out, They're like a boots, fucking boots on deck. <laughs> yeah. um, there's no secret now. Um, yeah. Cats out but, of the bag. <laughs> right. You know, and, and you hear horror stories and you expect it to be like this terrible, terrible thing where you just get fucked with all night. But man, like, what I'll say about my overall boot experience and what I learned immediately when I got on deck was if I didn't do anything wrong, nobody was going to fuck with me. Like, There's enough people doing wrong shit. 
Right. Like you're, you're going to be treated like a man. And if you just do what you're supposed to do, if you learn and progress and get better and you're actually an asset to everybody else, then you're gonna be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, uh, met my team leader the following day. He wasn't there that night. And that's exactly what he told me. He pulled me away from the barracks, away from everybody else, just me and him. Uh, there was no uniforms involved. There was no formality. And he was just like, Hey man, uh, you know, two things, uh, essentially act like a man and I'm going to treat you like a man and don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Hmm. And that was the, that was the theme for me, you know, um, yeah. being a, there was a lot expected of us and it kind of, you don't realize how much you don't know until you're put in front of somebody that knows a lot. Um, and it can be a very humbling experience. So that was also a main thing. There was never a point in time where I was like, oh yeah, man, like I've got this. And I felt like I could just, you know, take it easy. There was always some way to improve. Like mm -hmm. always. You yeah, could never and, and I think that that's a great personality ha to have and a great mindset to have, especially as a, as a junior Marine or as a boot coming in. And for you guys that are coming in, if you're junior Marines, you should you should take that up. And even you senior Marines, because if we are not always a student of the game or a student of what we are passionate about, you should always be a student. Um, there's too much stuff to know. There's too many things, too many little vignettes and, and, and little side things to your job. You will never know it all. You never know it all. You'll never know in you, you never know anything. That's that's where I've uh, kind of gotten to as an adult is you. There's just too much. You always have to be a student. You always have to take it in, read, pick the minds of your seniors, pick the minds of the people who are above you in whatever passion you have. Um, always be a forever student. Anyway, sorry to cut you off. I just want to throw that in because that's not a mindset I see very much. Um, either when I'm talking to guys or when I'm talking to junior Marines or I see them, it's like that's the exact mindset you need to have is that you could never learn enough. Like there's always more. So, you know. Well, I had the benefit of, you know, my older brother being around too, you know, mm -hmm. so I could all him and, you know, like my experience thus far and pretty much the entire time that I was in was relatively bullshit free on that, on that regard. Like my recruiter couldn't, he couldn't pull one over on me because yeah, my yeah. brother was the entire time, yeah. you know, there the entire time, like, you know, so I dodged that bullet as well. And anytime that I needed advice, you know, I could go to him about it, you know, yeah. yes, he was. He was an NCO, but at the same time, he's also my brother. So mm -hmm. that's a different relationship dynamic. You know, he's going to tell me straight and he's going to be honest with me, but he's going to have a little bit of a, Hey, I, I, I give a shit about you. Right. Uh, much to it. Yeah. He's got you that. Know? He's got a brother bias in the game. So he's going to be real. He's going to tell you, Hey dude, this is what's going on, but look out for this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. That's like, that's a great asset to have, especially when you got, you know, a brother that's locked on you know, squared away and doing the right thing. Um, yeah. And, so uh, yeah, go ahead. I didn't, the, the mentality that you were talking about, it didn't start out. It didn't start out that way. A hundred percent, you know, at first, like it was just simply like it, I was a robot, you know, yeah. go here, let's try and learn as much as you can. And then once I actually started to figure that out, it progressed a little bit. So sure. like learning primarily came from, you know, team leaders and, you know, I rarely saw my squad leader as a boot, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. aloof doing his own thing. Um, but the other team leaders and stuff, that's where a lot of the learning occurred when it came to the academic side of the house, when it came to like reading and studying and doing all that, 
that didn't gel for me until much later on. And I often think about how much easier I could have made things on myself or well, not really easier, but like how I could have facilitated the learning process a little bit better had I latched on to research and sure. reading on my earlier. This sure. is a huge part of development. Huge part. You know, the you thing know? is like, the thing is, at the time, in 07, the op-tempo is crazy. There's crazy things going on. You're a boot, and you're told, hey, you need to learn all of this, exactly what the fuck I tell you, and there's no time to fuck around, uh, and we're going to war, so get your war face on. And when you're told that, like, you're not thinking, let's go, let's go get on combat by Dave Grossman and just really dive into it. However... That's something you should have been told too. You know, you should have been told that. And let's, like, you don't have an excuse now. There's too many people doing these podcasts. There's too many people running this information out in front of you to have the excuse of, oh, I didn't know. You know, it's out there now. Now it's a, it's a matter of discipline. Do you have the discipline to, instead of going out and drinking with the boys and partying, to go home and knock, knock a hundred pages out and understand a hundred pages? Um, and, and for me, it's the same story as you. I didn't have anybody. We didn't have this. We had high op tempo, people telling us, shut the fuck up and train. And that's an excuse. That's only an excuse, and it's on me, and it's on you, and it's on all of us. That's an excuse. But it's a decent excuse. There's not very many decent excuses out there with this much info uh, and, 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 and popularized podcasts that are pushing information out in front of us. But here we are telling you. Uh, because I had the same story that didn't develop until later in my career, like right. halfway, you know, more than halfway through it. I'm like, Oh, there's so much power in this. Uh, and understanding your enemy, understanding the land that you're going to. Um, and, and that's just something I aim to, I aim to lessen the age of, if we can take it down to first term, if in your first term, you can figure this out, it would be great. You know what I mean? Um, right. So, yeah. Okay. So, now, when you fall in on these team leaders and you're in 2-6 here and you're doing the training, um, you say you very rarely see your squad leader. Are these the guys you're deploying with? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so these are this is the group. Yep. This is the group. This is the group. Uh, now, squad leader, platoon sergeant, that kind of that, – that changed hands a lot and stuff. Our team leaders stayed largely the same. Check. Um, now they moved around and stuff within the platoon, but we got there right as everything was like being formed, you yeah. know? So at first it was like, there was like eight team leaders and then the boot drops and that's it, you know? And then over time it became more whole and it actually looked like a co coherent unit. Yeah. Um, but. Which that's pretty general. That's, that's generally how it goes, right? You come back from a deployment, especially if it's a raunchy one, you have a bunch of NCOs, Xville, your junior yeah. guys are going to stand up and then generally you're going to pull some NCOs that are needed maybe from other places and you're bringing them in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we were at the time we were hoping for an Iraq deployment, um, obviously, but it's, uh, did not, end up going that way and i have no idea what the uh what the exact reason is for that i assume that some of that had to do with our command uh they were and and this is not i'm not one of those dudes that usually goes on the witch hunt and this changes too that's why it's important to note now um mm -hmm. the iraq command element that they had they obviously went away they went on to do other bigger and better things you know top notch from what we were all told uh, by our team leaders and stuff, which is rare in that era. 
as I understand when it's very common for, you know, people to just look up the chain of command and bitch about the next guy. Yeah. Um, everyone was real respectful of them, but when they left, we got a new group in and they were not so hot. Not this um, Yeah. So we ended up going on a mute and it was very disappointing at the time. Uh, little did I know that after our second deployment, I would be very grateful that we had those extra seven months to learn from those combat vets. And I often think about how much worse Marsha would have been had we not had that time. So it's mm-hmm. funny in the moment, you know, you look at these things and you're like, what the fuck? This is not what I signed up for, you know, but you shut up, you do your duty, you work hard, you develop as best you can. And then later on down the road, it pans out and you're like, ah, got it. You know, so if you notice the pattern, it's like that in, in recruit training with dad. And then it's like that with the general flow of events. It's yeah. just kind of how, it, you know, blessings. Uh, you don't think they yeah. are at the time, but they are in disguise. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah. sir. Yeah. Yep. And so, uh, anything notable from the Mew? I always ask because like I got to the end of my career and I never did one. And then I found myself, you know, I don't know about wanting, but wondering, like I got to do a lot of stuff. I got to do all of the, you know, rad stuff, but I didn't do a triple canopy jungle patrol or exercise and watch it black out at night. I didn't get that experience. I didn't get, you know, some of the guys have great stories from the training from Australia, from, from just different areas. And I missed, I missed that. So I'm assuming you got a little piece of that. Yeah. So the, um, the first mew that I went on, and I had two all total. Uh, it's kind of like bookends for the career. But, you know, this first one was uh, we got to see a lot of cool places, man. You know, and, and it seems kind of small to note this, but um, it would cost me God, somewhere in the neighborhood of probably like 20 grand for me to take my family and go see all the places that I saw. You know, I was 19 to 20 years old on this deployment, and I'm getting paid. To go see Greece, France, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, like all these places that most people would kill to go to and, and don't get to go to in their entire life. Yeah. You know, but that was pretty rad. Um, as far as the training and everything goes, and this is where um, this, this is really the main thing that, that I took away. Obviously, combat's its own separate thing. Okay. But when you're training with people in an infantry environment where the margin for error is so little due to the consequences and the potential consequences for failure. Okay. You're talking about somebody's life here. It's not mm-hmm. losing a job or losing a football game or, you know, blowing a big sale or something like that. Like if somebody messes up in this type of environment, when it counts, you're probably looking at a five-year-old little girl and telling her, Hey, you don't have a dad because I didn't do my fucking job. And Oh, by you the know? way, he was your best friend. Right. Yeah. So now I have to live with that. That family has to live with that. Nobody wants that, right? So, yes, it's a harsh environment. We don't shy away from correcting people at all. And we do it in public as well because chances are if one person fucks it up, somebody else did and it just didn't get caught or they would in the future. So you get the information out to everybody. It's not because we're trying to be assholes. It's just it's all about the team, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Personal views, your personal feelings, like none of that means anything. You're either an asset to the team or you're a liability to the team, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and when you're in that environment for a significant period of time and development, internal development, right? Not just physical development, but your mental development, your spiritual development, and 
how you fit into the whole the whole pie um that it changes you you know it has a profound effect on you how you carry yourself how you move forward in life and how you view that experience um and that's one of the things that i really miss the most i miss being in that culture mm. where everything was merit-based like literally everything you know and there was no hiding who you were, who you truly were on the inside. You know, you could suppress it and cover it for a little bit every sure. now and then, but eventually everybody's true colors are, are fleshed out for all the world to see. Hmm. There's no hiding permanently. You know, it's a completely different value system than, than American society. It is a different value system than the rest of the services and the other MOSs. It is unique and it has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, because of those consequences that we just talked about and because of the fact that in, in our war, which at this point in time is, is about like halfway through or so, right? Yeah. Oh, seven. Yeah. We, 10. It, yeah. Okay. So seven, 10, yeah. and then we're done in 21, about halfway. Yeah. So it's not a secret. We all know where eventually we're supposed to end up going. Um, But yeah, man, that uh, it has a significant and profound effect. I kind of lost track of where I was going with that last. No, one. no, you're just talking about the differences between a training environment and then what was to come. So when you were on your muse, uh, especially your first one, you had great training, um, but you did not. You cannot replicate the environment on your resilience, your emotion, your spirituality that you find on the con- on the battlefield. That's just it's a fact. Yeah. 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 Training, the best training in the world is only going to get you so far. Um, and, but I do think that the environment that you train in has a significant impact on being able to carry it that last little bit, you know? Um, and we were fortunate enough to have team leaders that may have hated the Marine Corps, but they, they didn't want anything bad to happen to us. They didn't want that on their conscience. Yeah. You know? So they trained us to the best of their ability. And we benefited from that greatly. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that, so that's really what the Mew kind of drove home to me, you know? Yeah. Um, no, that's, yeah. A, that's a great thing. And, and I would say you said these team leaders came straight out of Fallujah. Yep. Fresh out of Fallujah. And, um, I never looked at training the way I should have looked at training until I was in Marja. And I did an Iraq deployment before that, you know, and we just, we were never tested there. And so I didn't have that burning sensation of training, train or die. Um, but when I came back from Marja, I was a different person. When I came out of that, all I cared about was training. You never had enough time to train. There's not enough. You have to be better. You have to be perfect. And I would assume that some of your team leaders had that mentality coming out of Fallujah deployment, coming out of a real deployment uh, where, where where things aren't always good. Yeah. Well, it, some of them did and some of them didn't, you know. And this, to, to be clear here, this was this – was It's not Fallujah oh, 1, but these guys are over in Iraq, yeah. You know, so I, I don't know exactly what their deployment was like, um, but you could tell there were there were definitely ones that that valued it a whole whole lot more than others did. You know, some mm-hmm. were just 
get out and move on. But even those guys, when it actually came time to execute something and do something like they were there, yeah. you know, and if you had questions or something like that, they would answer them, yeah. you know, they may be nice about it, but they're going to give you everything that, that you need. Um, sure. And then there were the other ones that were just, you know, a little bit, they were cut above and they were driving the training and they were making sure that we were where we were supposed to be. And we were using our time as effectively as we possibly could, you sure. know? Sure. Well, that's great, and that's going to pay dividends later um, because if you had some of the guys just wanted to lay up, drop the pack, say this is my last deployment and it's a mew and I don't give a fuck, well, all that does is hurt your junior Marines, get bad habits started, and then you know they're going to find themselves in a, in a situation in the Wild West and not have the training that they need. Moreover, and I wonder this too, I haven't spoken to, to those guys, but I I think about, you know, one of the few things that I do have is, is I'm proud of the way that I left mm. the service. You know, that, that's its own thing, you know, because I had seen the opposite so many times, you know, I wonder how they feel about that. You know, I wonder how they, they look at the way that they acted and that mentality on their way out the door. And I wonder if that bothers them. Now, what do you, you know, mean? I, what what, what kind of, how did they act? Like, so the few that, that wanted to drop their packs and stuff, and this is not necessarily just a, you know, just a, my senior specific thing. Sure, I, sure, I saw sure. the single unit that I went to, that was the typical thing. Once somebody makes that decision, they're just like, you know what? I'm done with this. I don't want anything to do with it at all. Just, just get me out of here as quickly as possible, you know? And I wonder what it's like having to live with that, having to look back on that and be like, wow, man, I, I probably could have, you know, at least contributed something on my way out the door. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. I think that would be a person to person kind of a thing. And, you know, remember, there's a lot of people that got disenfranchised in that war, disenfranchised from the military, from the Marine Corps, from the U.S. government, and maybe even more now than then. So I don't know how they would feel about it. You know, I would expect that. Here's one thing I say. Uh, I said this on another podcast that I was a guest on, but I would say. um, If you ever did anything on becoming. I think you feel it now. If you ever did anything dishonorable, I think you feel it now. But like if you just let yourself down and you didn't grow to your full potential as a human being and as a Marine leader or as an Army leader, um, like one day you're going to meet yourself. And that's true hell. True hell is when you meet the person you were supposed to become. When God says right there, that's what you had the chance at. That's what you could have done. And he didn't do that. Um and when you are in situations where that is the answer and you didn't give everything you could give, um, and that's not just to your Marine career, or to your soldiering, that's to everything in your life. You get to the point, you get to the end and you look and said, you could have done all these things and you didn't do those things. Um, I can't imagine what that would feel like. And I don't want to, I don't want to know what that's like. I want to give it all until, till it's done. Anyway, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I think those people will do soul searching one day, especially the ones that did things dishonorable, even if they didn't get caught. They'll, they'll think about that forever. Yeah. What torture. So bring me home from the Mew. Talk to me about transition. Talk to me about moving up in the moving up in the billets, you know, and uh, and then prepping for your next go round. Okay, so. um, This is when everything just kind of started to change, you know. Um, so we got home and, um, 
it's just like you said, like the process just kind of started over. All of our seniors left, you know, essentially. There was maybe, maybe like three or four of them that stuck around. Okay, mm-hmm. there was not. Most of them, it was just a mass exodus. So they formed their own platoon and they just, the command just kind of let them be over there. Old, um, old star platoon, yeah? Yeah. There, there was Short a lot timers of against reenlistment. <laughs> right. So they, they, they kind of wanted that away yeah. from, from us, you know? And that's not to say like they were terrible dudes or anything. A lot of them were just ready to get out, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and we could still go to them and, and get advice. And some of them were still around for like when we were training, because guess what? We were the team leaders now, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was a big deal to us, you know? Yeah. Like, like team leaders were made the whole fucking world go round, man. Like that was the deal. Squad leaders. Yeah. Like they had a part to play in that as well. But above that, it was just like, all right. Like I've, I've got a platoon sergeant. I know his name. I couldn't tell you what it looks like, you know, and my platoon commander's up doing Navy things somewhere up there. I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but the, the team leaders made the world go round, man. And the squad leaders were there to kind of like reinforce that. And so being chosen to be a team leader, when you come back, because there weren't enough spots for all of us. We had a massive boot drop, mm. you know, uh, it's like 75% boots in our platoon. Yep. So I was going to be able to be a team leader. Um, getting that nod was a huge, uh, ego boost at sure. the time. Sure. You know, uh, I felt like, again, I was on that mountaintop, uh, not realizing that, you know, the clouds were just coming at summit, uh, <laughs> <laughs> recurring theme here, you know, yeah, yeah. um, but uh, so we're standing in formation one day and uh, they're finally getting everything uh, settled and all that. Our, our new platoon sergeant comes out and he calls off the names and our billets and everything like that. Um, and so I got moved back from first squad to second squad in the formation, but I was a first team leader. I was an APL, you sure, know, yeah. uh, so thing happened to my squad leader who I didn't know who it was at the time. Uh, I was going to be the dude to take that, to take that on. So it was like a double ego boost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so out of nowhere, my squad leader shows up, um, a man by the name of Zach Walters, and he had been in third platoon on this last Mew. So I kind of knew who he was, mm. but he polar opposite of my squad leader. All right, so my squad leader was the big, burly, like, sledgehammer type of dude, you know, Um you get drunk in a libo port and do something stupid, he's going to beat the shit out of you and throw you around and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm. Zach was not that kind of dude. Um, now, I would come to find out that he had subtle ways of making you feel pain when you needed it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, w- I was skeptical, to say the least, all right? But the first thing this dude does, right, um, is he walks straight down the line from me to every single man in the squad, all three team leaders and every boot that we have as well, introduces himself, shakes our hand, and tells us it's going to be a pleasure working with him. And I was like, huh, wait, that just happened? I mean, this dude mm-hmm. just shit and work harder and then go disappear somewhere? Like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> All right? So that that kicked things off. Um, and then the workup, as we moved into this, it was like the entire unit underwent this massive shift you know so i mentioned that our command element was not too hot on the mu Mm. um that changed almost overnight uh we got uh sergeant major fry in as our battalion sergeant major and at the time lieutenant colonel kyle ellison uh he's now a brigadier general 
Um, and yeah, we won't, won't go any more with that. But um, so that was our that was our team, and it started from the top down. Uh, pretty mm-hmm. soon, just personnel that were getting moved around. Like they painted the giant two six uh, World War One Bella Wood battle mural on the wall. You know, so that every single time you go into the company office, you see that and you're like, wow, like people actually take pride in this place. Mm-hmm. You know, it looked cleaner. It started to run cleaner when people needed to get things done. It didn't take forever. The operation got a lot smoother and that freed us up to focus on what we should have been doing all along, which is a whole lot more training. Yeah. Um, yeah. And furthermore, the onus was on the squad leaders and the fire team leaders to make that happen. You know, if you were one of those dudes that was dependent on someone higher than you to tell you how to train or what to do, you weren't going to be in a leadership billet for too long. Right. They were going to get at somebody else that could do that. Um, and Zach took that expectation and he ran with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he drove training not based off of, you know, like, a, hey, if you fuck this up, you're going to feel pain type of thing. It was more of a, hey, it, it was a smart measured approach and creativity okay creativity was really at the heart of it all it's yes we have all these concepts from this book or from what you were taught on the mew all right sure. but how do that and how we how do we mold it to a whole bunch of different situations in order to win you know you're at point a you've got to get to point b i don't give a fuck how you get there as long as you get there mm-hmm. you know? and he he never outright said it but like implicitly he demanded that of us mm-hmm. he demanded that our brains be be working overtime to try and come up with creative solutions to problems uh and to exercise initiative as well he would rather us go full speed on our own and make a mistake and then correct the mistake on the back end from mm-hmm. an education point uh than to just freeze or be totally reliant on him yeah. he wasn't having you know so completely different environment than i was used to um and he understood each and every single one of us in the squad he understood what our strengths and weaknesses were and how to employ us appropriately um he understood how different we all were and he kind of acted as the glue he was the piece that held everything together you know essentially what's going on here from a very zoomed out perspective is all of us are in an environment where different though i may be from team leader two and team leader three um all of our strengths are put into positions where they can shine and complement one another yes and our weaknesses are being improved behind the scenes you know so the ball's moving forward inch by inch by inch by inch by inch and uh yeah man it was a longer workup uh I want to say it was about 10 months or so. You're working yeah. up for a Mew? No, no, on the back end of the Mew. No, I know, know, but were they originally working up for a Mew on the back end, or did they know from the beginning they were going into Marja? Well, not Marja. Marja was Afghanistan. Was yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just held under wraps, if you yeah, will. Yeah. We, pretty sure, though, just based off of how different everything was, like, yeah, there. this is not going to be a, a bullshit deployment here. Yeah, like, yeah. no. And uh, close, the closer that we got, um, we actually started seeing things posted up in the barracks, you know, like right by the duty huts and stuff like that, like Operation Mustark. And you, know, mm-hmm. you guys, what y'all are doing, a uh, mm-hmm. little time, but 
it was almost like they knew about it and they just waited for a little bit, but they were introducing these measures to help like get our minds in the get right your place. Minds right. Oh, yeah. Yep. You know, and, and knowing, knowing Sergeant Major Fry and, and Lieutenant Colonel at the time, Ellison, uh, that's doesn't surprise me at all if that's how it went down. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, man. So we had about 10 months or so to gestate in that type of environment to learn and to get a whole lot better. Um, and to get a whole lot tougher as well. Uh, PT got a whole lot harder, but a whole lot more interesting. There was a lot of fighting involved, a lot more fighting. Um, Zach was real big on just like raw physical aggression. Mm-hmm. You know, care how big you were, he just wanted to see what kind of it'd be. That was really it. Yeah, man. You know, um, and so it, it wasn't the same old, same old anymore. You know, there was there was actual thought, critical thought put into everything that we did. And the training that we did was more inclusive, not like, not based on people's feelings, but based on people's abilities and stuff, you know? So we had a faculty leader and that's where Zach came from before the Mew. And they had critical skills when it came to um, close quarters battle that the rest of us did not have, Hmm. you know? Look, what we had learned in Mount, you know, like block three, just straight destroy everything. And what they had learned in a non-pervasive environment like CQB or, you know, advanced urban combat was a school they went to. And we found ways to mend them together and made our own like bastardized version of the stuff. Sure. Right. Which takes hours and hours and hours and days and days and days and days in order to do, you know, for sure. And really like that time together, just working through things and figuring it out was awesome because it wasn't a, it wasn't a bad environment. You know, mm. when we were done that, like on the few days that we, we're actually back in the rear. We weren't out training because uh, field time was plentiful on this workup. You know, we would we would go out together as a squad. You know, and our conversations over over steaks and whiskey sours at dinner and stuff was, you know, hey man, like should we all like chip in and get the entire squad this piece of gear? How could we use that in X formation and this and there? Like, work That's was great. not. You know, it was fucking awesome because we created it. Mm-hmm. Everybody had a stake in it, you know? Um, and that's a very rare thing to say that you've experienced. I think in any walk of life, most people just hate their jobs and they do it because, well, I need things. I have mouths to feed. I have a mortgage to pay, you know, whatever. Yeah. We didn't have that. And like, we were all in a place where we legitimately loved what we were doing and we really liked working with each other, Yeah, you know, started to rub off on each other. So that was that was a damn good workup because of that, you know, and I have very fond memories of both on duty and in the field and off duty with the squad. And there was just nothing quite like it. You know, it was a, it was a great time, brother. It really was. Best job I ever had. Yeah, man, that's, uh, that's awesome. And, and, and that's going to be a lethal squad. When you have a squad eat together, dine together, talk together, live together, shit together, bleed together, that squad's going to be so tight when they get there and when they get up out of there that uh, that's a forever bond. Um, that's the brotherhood. That's the brotherhood that you hear so much about. When you come up out of that, uh, after, after building that, uh, progressing through your uh, workup, bonding, molding, melding, and then going and doing work. Um, amazing. Yep. So at, at what point 
at what point do you know for sure what you're doing? Um, it was fairly late, fairly late in the deployment. Um, I can't remember exactly when, but I want to say like that last quarter of the, uh, of the workup, that's kind of when we all, we all, the work is like, Hey, it is Afghanistan. We just didn't know exactly where, you know? Um, and for some reason I'm, I'm drawing a blank on that, man. Um, I guess like, cause to us, we just, we always assumed, you know, and one told us a big deal it was like you're telling me something that i already know like are you gonna point to a spot on the map because that would be cool but right. if not yeah because you had a couple of things going on it wasn't just margie you had margie had sangin going on you had a couple of a couple of other places that were fiery so you could have ended up it didn't have to be there you didn't you, you no. know so no it did and it another thing too man like this was 2010 like iraq was like the embers on the iraq fire were still a little bit hot they sure. were out but like afghanistan was one of those things like yeah everybody knew that it happened but and it was going on but it was like in the background sure type of iraq was was front and center you know sure and then that was dying off you know now Afghanistan moves in, moves into the front, you know? Um, so yeah, man, it, it wasn't a huge shot. Check. It really wasn't. Now, now walk me through this. Um, when I went, I was first boots on deck. So I think that it's going to be a bit different because my Iraq deployment, I wasn't, it was different there, but when we went in, we staged, we flew in. Now, when you guys come in, are you coming in, uh, are you coming into Leatherneck and then staging somewhere? Or are you coming in? Uh, talk to me about, Okay, we know it's Marja, we're set, and now you're going over. Where do you go to? So, uh, you know, we did the typical route through Europe and, and wherever. Uh, we stopped in uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan, actually, um, initially. That was the first, like, well, yeah. <laughs> you, you expected to be austere because it, it, it's a stand, you know? Yeah, and but then it's you not. Get <laughs> I, no, it, it, it's like a, it, it, it's a mobile Air Force five-star fucking hotel with mountains of free candy bars and 24-hour chow halls. And you're like, man, like, this is what Great. you guys have to join the fucking Air Force. Jesus. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, uh, no. So we, we stayed over there briefly and, you know, everybody got their, you know, their, their final Pizza Hut and, and, and cups of coffee and whatnot. And then we flew out to Dwyer. Straight into um, Dwyer. Okay. Actually, no, 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 no. We stopped. We stopped somewhere else. I'm trying to remember where it was. Um, we came from the stand to Leatherneck, and then Leatherneck down down to Dwyer, I believe, is what we did. You know, it, it may have been Leatherneck. I didn't. I didn't really do anything. I didn't go anywhere. It was like a small city. They had like a TGI Fridays and stuff. I know some of the other guys went there because we had a couple hours layover. I just went to sleep. Oh, so, you know, that definitely not Leatherneck it. then. Um, but yeah, then, then we ended up in Dwyer and that's where we spent the first couple of weeks for our acclimation period and all that, sure. to get all of our brief. and, uh, then from there it was, uh, it was on the helos and it was yeah. out where we we're going to go. So check. Yep. Now, um, ah, this is, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. You guys are going to come into Dwyer and you're going to stage for a bit. And at some point the rip toe is going to start with, one six who's south of me and south of me you have one six operate in southern marja three six was operating in northern marja you guys are going to come in and take one six and rip them out two nine is going to come down and rip us out 
and just just going to talk a little bit through the way I remember it, and then I want you to kind of fill me in a little bit on how it how it went, or if or if the way that I remember it is uh, not accurate. But we were still operating, um, and and like I said in the monologue, well, I'm out at a at an OP, you know, picketing uh, an MSR to make sure that they don't backfill us. You know, they they were backfilling IEDs down 608 and 605 the whole time we were there. And so I'm out there. The command uh, the command element shows up in trucks. They're bringing water and chow and whatnot. And they're like, hey, just you guys need to stay frosty. This fight ain't over. And I know you know that, but we're just saying it. And um, we're like, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, we know that. Like, they're, they're, they're crawling everywhere. They're like, no, you know, two, two squad leaders came in from 2-6 to rip out 1-6. And they're not with us anymore. And we were like, oh, like just such a, a punch to the gut. And it's like, you know, how does this happen? Like how? Not like I understand how, but I just couldn't imagine being what in this case you um, who's got to find that out. And um, and then assume command and you haven't even got to the battlefield yet. And um, and that to me always boggled my mind. And even in. In talks and speeches that I've talked about, I've talked about that very thing, which is crazy that we made up, you know, this far after the fact and talk about it now, which is amazing. Um, walk me through your side of that. So, um, all right. So Zach, um, Zach went ahead on the advance party. Uh, like you said, he went ahead with, you know, it's standard practice, you know, several, several squad leaders, the company commander, a few other people, the, the tactical leadership, or at least a piece of that from every unit is what goes forward to kind of ascertain more situational awareness. That way it's in theory, at least it's easier for a unit to come in. If at least the leadership knows what's going on and they can kind of prep people for it. Sure. Okay? I'm not sure how a normal rip's supposed to go in a combat zone, because this is the only combat deployment that I had. And, you know, as you just mentioned, uh, it did not go as planned and it did not go as practiced. Um, so, uh, the 8th of June in 2010, um, you know, Zach's been over there for several, several weeks now, you know, we're getting ready to leave like, I think five days later or so we're all headed out. Um, and I'm taking my boots over to admin to go get some last minute BS squared away. And everybody's just at this point, like we've done all the training that we're going to do. We're just trying to get everything administratively squared away so we can go home and spend a little bit of time with our families before we leave. You know, that's kind of everybody's focus right now. Mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. And great about it too. You know, we had a couple of days where, you know, you came in, you got things done, then you were out by like noon or something like, Hey, go home, go see your families, you know? Um, so it's early morning sometime um, on the eighth and taking these guys out to my truck. And uh, I hear this voice, you know, it's our company first sergeant, uh, Eric Kaysen. Um, and you know, he calls out to his like, Hey, where the fuck are you guys going? Morning first sergeant. I'm taking my guys over to add No, you're not. Get the fuck over there to gazebo right now. Call all your boys, get everybody here. Okay. I first sergeant, you know, we, we go over there and all that. We had guys to the winds doing all sorts of shit. I had one guy that was a chaser. My second team leader was a chaser at the mm -hmm. time. You know, I had a dude in a fucking orange jumpsuit, like there at the meeting, <laughs> yes. right? Like we, everybody from fucking everywhere like dudes were coming in that were at yeah. home um and it took a few hours to get everybody on deck but once we did you know so first sergeant brings everybody in there's no formal setting or anything like that you know it's just everybody get close and uh 
there's a chaplain standing behind him and a whole bunch of high level officers that I just I've never fucking seen before. You know, like this is so. Complete... Hold on, hold on. You're still in the states. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. I just had to clear that up for myself. You're not even in the country yet. You're in the United States. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. So we're at the uh, in uh, where Six Marines area is. You know, across from PT Road, there's that gazebo. Yep. Yeah. Parking lot. That's where we're at in front of that gazebo. Um, and first arm brings us all in and, uh, he's like, Hey guys, there's no easy way to say this. So I'm just going to say it. Uh, we got word that Sergeant Walters and Sergeant Chanfield were killed. And that's he kept going. He kept talking. I don't remember anything that he said after that. Mm-hmm. Like he just, it's like that white noise, you know, like you hear that. Uh, yeah. And everything else just kind of gets tuned out. Like my platoon sergeant's standing like right behind me. And I'm like, oh, shit. All you guys knew about this before we did. Like, and it's, it's all kind of starting to come together. But that that initial shock, mm-hmm. the only thing that's going on right now with me, like that's it, you know. And I did an interview a while back uh, with a, you know, with, with a 30-year infantry Marine named Brad Washabaugh not too long ago and. It's it, in that, you know, I, I, I kind of say the same thing that I'll go over here. Like you never expect it to be like the number one badass in the unit. <laughs> oh, um, you think about, you know, like it could be one of your buddies or something like that. You think about yourself definitely in all the ways that you could die or you could get fucked up. Like it's, it's only natural going into that environment to wonder how you're going to react, what it's going to be like, you know, um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way that it is. The human mind is going to wonder about those things sure, naturally. Sure. Um, and you always wonder, you always wonder how it's going to happen or, you know, what you're going to be like, but nobody ever thinks it's going to be the number one dude, you know? Um, and that was, after that, they just kind of left us for a little bit. They kept everybody there in that area. Um, And they, you know, they told us, obviously, stay off your fucking phones. Like, if anybody saw a phone, they were losing their shit. Mm -hmm. Um, Families had to be notified properly. And, you know, nobody wants to find out that somebody's been killed on on fucking Facebook. That's a terrible way to find somebody's been killed. So, um, after that initial shock, man, what, what really, the next thing that set in was just this, this searing fucking anger Hmm. you know um and not like a livid you know highly active anger but more of a just like a deep like burning searing sort of fucking anger you know i wanted to torch the entire country of fucking afghanistan and just not give a fuck about how they felt about it or their way of life or their culture or their religion or anything i didn't give a shit you know Mm -hmm. in that moment Mm -hmm. in that moment all right. And I'll stress, this is just me. All right. Like not everybody that was there that got that news felt the same way. All right. And we certainly didn't act on those emotions that I was feeling in that way when we went over there. But in that moment, okay, as a young team leader, having never experienced combat before and having my mentor killed when I wasn't there to do anything about it either. That's that, that pain right there. That's that that's that pain that you can't do anything. It's like, um, it's almost like, um, 
like a dude that takes his own life and you're you're not there to stop him you never got the phone call you and you're just angry you're just mad and this is even worse because this is the enemy taking him you know um i understand i understand that and you say they they knew before you guys are you are you saying that your platoon sergeant and such some i would that, imagine yeah yeah it's like Right after they said something, like I realized, like he's standing like right behind me. And does hand. it does the weight set into you um, that you're going to take this squad initially? Um, it definitely crossed my mind. Yes, because yeah. that was another thing too. Like looking back on it, you know, we, one of those things, you know, these things that you're doing that you don't realize how they're going to benefit you later on. Mm-hmm. Succession command that process to which we know who's going to take over when somebody gets hit and on down the line like that was pre-built into everything that we did yeah exactly throughout the entire workup the entire workup and there were a few times when he removed himself from the situation and and put me in charge just to see how i would react sure you know um and you know we have one major exercise uh, i think it was like a battalion fetch or something where uh, he had to go back to the rear and, and do something with his extension package because he extended to come on this deployment with us. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to have the squad for that day. Um, and he did it with other team leaders too. It wasn't just me, but it was a thing throughout the entirety of our, of our workup together. That whole 10 month period, you know, it was in every order that he briefed. We talked about it all the time. We war gamed about it all the time. We did it in small scenarios that we set up as a squad um but it was more so of the hey it, it, it this is a developmental thing you know we yeah. want to prepare you for leadership roles and stuff you know like i said sure no next that it's actually going to be that dude the number one badass and when you're preparing for it mentally you always picture yourself being there when it happens when yeah. somebody gets you never prepare yourself or at least i didn't anyway for being on your way to admin one day and finding out that one of your guys got smoked. Yeah. Now, did they tell you how it happened uh, when they told you? Did they just tell you that he got he got hit and he went down? So the only information that we received was that it was a it was an IED. Okay. You know, um, and we we found out that um, it was the same IED that took him and another squad leader, Sergeant Derek Shanfield, who he was in third platoon. Um, and so I, I knew of him, I had interacted with him very little. Um, I did not know him personally. That's why I don't speak about him a whole lot. Um, I, I think that would kind of be wrong in me to, to act as if I was really good friends with him when I wasn't. Sure. Uh, the impression that he left though on his, on his platoon was, was very evident, um, in the wake of his death though. Uh, he was, he was another very, very good leader as I understand it, you know, and his guys valued him a lot. Um, so it was hard on third platoon as well. Um, you know, but sure, sure. Now, um, I know that one of the, and I don't know much, I only know a little bit of what, you know, I heard plus what was going on, you know, in RAO. And I know that they were just South, but one of the things that the enemy had started to do at that time, because, you know, they'd been watching us for however many months, um, was they would set, they would set IEDs in like the the entryways to buildings. And then as we would come patrol past that, they knew we would suck to cover to fight them. So they would, you know, shoot that initial burst or whatever at us. 
and then watch the Marines suck to the, you know, to the cover and pop to the pop to the roofs and things of that nature. And, um, you know, if that was a tactic used and multiple Marines were, were trying to get into uh, cover uh, or into a building that could have been bad. And, you know, and I didn't hear the story. I just heard that they were taken down, you know, by an ID. Um, but that the Taliban were absolutely crafty in the area and doing things around that time that, you know, um, they didn't care about the civilian population, which makes it hard for us. Uh, because yeah. you would assume people be living in these buildings and not letting bombs be put in their, you know, in their doorways. And, and at the time, it just wasn't the case. They ruled yeah. with an iron fist and those people were damned uh, one way or another. So um, and that's tough. Um, and, and you're still in the United States. You, your main effort's still there, which is wild. Um, and so you get to you get to take that long plane plane flight over knowing this and your whole platoon knowing this. Um, I want to know at what point did you talk to the squad about this? Like when, when cooler minds prevailed, I'm sure. But like, how did that go? Um, so there was a, a big rigmarole of personnel shifts that took place in this, in this time period. It's very chaotic. Right. Um, so initially they were going to bring in another sergeant who was on his way out of the Marine Corps at the time. Um, the second that he found out that, uh, Sergeant Jarrett or Sergeant Champfield and Sergeant Walters were killed. He was like, Nope, not getting out. I want to go on this deployment. So our battalion Sergeant Major moved heaven and earth in order to get that package pushed through. Um, so my platoon commander pulled me off to the side and let me know, like, Hey, you're his APL. You've been in this position for a long time, and I know that you're expecting to take over the squad, but we want someone with a little bit more experience right now. It's not personal. It's just business, and we need every edge that we can get. No offense, you know. It's like okay, yeah. it makes sense. I'm fucking pissed about it because, like I said, you know that was what I had trained for. You know, check. Yep. And so it's somebody I, new coming into y'all squad right before you know a big a big deal. So, right, and and fortunately, I knew of him. He was in first platoon on the Mew, you know, so I knew of him. Hadn't okay. really interacted with him a whole lot, but I I knew his reputation. You know, and his reputation was more of a, he was like a, a modern day crusader type. He's a devout Christian man, uh, hard as nails, really big BJJ guy. That's where he spent his off time when we were out in the field, going and slaying himself at a BG, BJJ gym. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was definitely hardcore, uh, had a reputation for being proficient as well. And, you know, so I, I kind of got it. I understood like, okay. Mm-hmm. Now, so I pulled the squad up to one of the lounges and I let him know what was going on. Um, and then he came in and he addressed the squad. He was very professional about it. And he, one of the first things he said was, hey, you know, I, I respected Sergeant Walters. I didn't know him like you guys did. I'm not here to change everything that you guys have done up to this point. I'm going to find a way to integrate into what you do, you know? So that kind of made us feel a little bit more comfortable, at sure. least me. Um, and then we went to Dover to receive Zach and Derek's remains and we met Zach's family and saw a very different side of the Marine Corps. Um, and that was a very, very, very sobering experience. You know, he was this larger than life figure, a mentor to all of us, you know, left an incredible impression on us. And we saw his remains in a box about this big. Now, whether that was actually his remains or just 
whatever they found it was personal effects i didn't know but to see it reduced to that and know that it happened in a flash and actually years later um in the manner that you spoke about with the taliban tactics um you know we didn't know that at the time but we can we can get into that later um sure, there was sure. question marks as to how it went down you know so we get I, I don't know I'm a, I was all out of assumption man you know how you know how word works over there I I have no clue right. and and I'm interested to talk we I and mean, we can get into it but um yeah go ahead yeah well it, and the thing is like we still had all those questions at this time none of us knew exactly how it happened we just knew it was an IED the same blast took both of them and that was it so okay time to push forward you know much much motherfucker yeah. um and uh we get over to Dwyer uh Sergeant Lutz that squad leader was supposed to be taken over for for Zach had to stay back and so I just kind of stayed in as an interim squad leader type dude um we got our brief from the company commander and RAO was massive um too big for three squads to cover because we had to man the post um at our our outpost we had to have a QRF force quick reaction force ready to go we also had to have a patrolling effort Mm -hmm. as well um so that was going to be rough for seven months straight, um, given that there was still a lot of kinetic combat going on uh, in the AO at the time, and they made the decision that we needed four squads. Okay, so what happened was is I would retain the squad that we had been the entire time. Um, and each of us, so there were three squads, right? Each of us would give one fire team Okay, plus some uh, Marines from our weapons platoon as well to form that fourth squad. Mm-hmm. Um, the team that I had trained the entire time was the team that we elected to send over. And as much as I hated it at the time, it made the most sense. It did. You know, uh, they those two Marines stayed together um, and they went over to Sergeant Lutz and then we became fourth squad. Um but I kept the same team leaders that I had worked with and, you know, 75% of the Marines that had been in our squad for that entire 10 month workup. And that's how that actually went down. Uh, and all that happened in camp Dwyer. So by the time, you know, we were boarding the helos to actually land in Marsha and assume combat operations, it was all in place. Um, sure. you know, so. Check, check. Now give me an idea of the, the squads mentality um your squad that you assume what is their mentality i know you're savage mad ready to go make somebody kill uh pay for this uh buddy that they killed and this leader and this mentor are they very much on the same page uh yes but i think to an extent to where they're a little bit more conscious of um emotional control Hmm. about the process and we had a our second team leader or who would become our second team leader at the time, Corporal Smith, uh, he actually gave voice to that in the moments after we found out Sergeant Walters was killed, you know, about that time that my shock gave way to my anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually spoke up to the squad and told them, you know, Hey, Sergeant Walters would not want us to lose control and to essentially do things that would, that would bring dishonor. Uh, to ourselves or to the Marine Corps or to his memory mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not at a place emotionally 
where I was going to do that. Mm -hmm. Even if I had thought about it, I wouldn't have given voice to it. Mm -hmm. You know, such was my anger at the time. Um, yeah, that's good I, foresight on that corporal's part. It is. It is. And looking back on it and looking back on, you know, the deployment and how it played out, it just kind of brings to mind to me the the difference between myself and the other team leaders. You know, so instead of having a, a normal TO squad with three team leaders and, you know, an RTO and all that, we broke it into two teams, you know, uh, team one, team two, you know, and that's how we operated um, somewhat independently of each other when we were outside the wire, uh, but like a mutual support kind of concept. Sure. And, you know, we have one team leader, um, Lance Corporal Turnip Seed, and he was just kind of all about the experience. You know, uh, he was a lot more scholarly than I was. Um, he and Zach built their bond, both being security forces, Marines from Fast Company. And they look to other campaigns and other militaries to kind of bring tactics in to what we did. A lot from the, uh, the Rhodesian Salu scouts, and uh things like that you know corporal smith um the marine that had you know brought up um the issue about not slaughtering everything that we see he legitimately wanted to help people i believe um mm -hmm. he, he cared about that aspect of the deployment um more of the protection aspect the nation building aspect those types of things sure and seeds was the seeds valued the experience you know he just this was a part of living life to the fullest for him, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to be the next Achilles. Um, <laughs> a lofty goal for sure, but a highly unrealistic goal, all right? Which is also something that I was too arrogant and too proud to admit to myself at the time. Yeah. Um, and this just kind of like fueled that fire for me. Um, you know, so and and those differences between us three and my lack of emotional intelligence would build some walls um, throughout the course of this deployment. You know, when you have things like that, those types of interpersonal issues, um, it brings to light how intricate this whole thing is. It's not just a bunch of dumb grunts, you know, <laughs> dragging their knuckles around and destroying stuff. It is a highly personal experience to exist in this culture. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it requires a, a lot of emotional intelligence for a squad leader, um, which is something that I hadn't been confronted with before at all. Mm. Uh, being just the blunt instrument type of leader that I was, if you can call it a leader, quote unquote. Um, I was the scream and yell kind of sledgehammer type, you know, didn't get me very far when, when the rounds actually started, you know, going, going two ways. But yeah, man, uh, it, it humbled me a lot, uh, realizing that that's not the way that, that you have to go about it. And their mentality, I think it, because me and Zach were so different that affected everyone in the squad. Sure. So it brought to light to me how important the relationship between squad leaders and team leaders are and how that relationship will filter down to everybody else. You know, the Thanks. kids know when that are fighting just the way Thanks. that it is. Yeah. Um, and several times throughout the deployment, I was presented with that fact and I just said, fuck it. Nope. I'm here. I've made my decision. This is who I am as a leader. This is how I'm going to go forward. You know? So I was really stubborn. I was really good at just powering through something. Not so good at taking a step back and, and realizing, Hey, this is a very different role mm -hmm. and I'm 
dust, you know, yeah. for the benefit of the squad. Um, yeah, that's part of the, you know, the big psychology I wanted to talk about. Um, I never did that. I never assumed through succession and, and thank God. And, and I don't think a lot of people do. You know, there's not a lot of people that have done that. And the reason I say that is like I took my first squad as a corporal. I was young. I was borderline too young, um, inexperienced. And I had to learn uh, with that squad that how I was doing it was not the right way. Like I had to learn that through a squad. And I hate that that squad had to, you know, have a not 100% me. But it wasn't a 100% me. It wasn't what I would become because I needed to almost experience things with them to understand that I was too arrogant or prideful or, you know, whatever you want to call it, ah, savage to do it correctly. I had to realize that, you know what, that, that's just, you know, I tried that way. I tried it for a couple of months and it weren't the way. That's just not the way to go. And so you're having, you're having in this situation to, to figure that out on a deployment where it matters. Um, and that's different. And, and all the while recovering from a, an emotional uh, gutting of losing your mentor that you thought would be there to show you this kind of stuff when the rounds are going both ways. And so that's just, um, that's, that's what I wanted to talk about in that core. You, you've already covered it, but I mean, you're, you're still recovering from this stuff and having to see, oh, this isn't the way. Like there's a reason, there's a reason he did things the way he did them or they, whoever you want to look at. Right. And, and that was a lot of that became glaringly true in the latter part of the deployment, you know, the, the beginning part of it, you know, I mean, we were, you know, so, so we got separated from the company when we first got on deck and we went down, we were attached to weapons company, um, a little bit South of everybody else at a place called Cotneria. Okay. And so our first couple of months were kind of alone, uh, not alone technically, but we were away from the rest of the company and it trying to, so first off from an emotional standpoint, dealing with Zach's loss, that didn't really happen. Okay. Um, and I just kind of stuffed it down and said, okay, I'll deal with it when I get back home. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, it is what it is. You know, I mean, you're here at this point, there's only so much that you can control. If it's your time, it's your time, yeah. you know, um, but I didn't confront that the way that I should have. And so you had, I had that in the background kind of like gnawing and just eating away a little bit, you know, I didn't realize that's what was going on, but looking back on it now, um, that definitely played a factor in, in how I carried myself and how I interacted with the squad, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then those differences with the team leaders as well. The, the first thing that really jumped out to me was, was how well Zach understood everybody, you know, and I hashed on this before. I didn't realize it until I was in his shoes, you know, yeah. that in itself was a monumental task. You know, I, I compare it like this, and this is what I tell my kids when, you know, when they ask about it and stuff, you know, Zach wore a size 15 boot. I wear a size nine and I had to fill that out, you know, um, and it just wasn't going to happen. You know, I had other people tell me like, Hey, you're going to have to figure out your own way to do this. Don't try and be Zach. And I was like, Oh yeah, man, for sure. Absolutely. But I didn't actually do that. I just stayed being me and tried to force that. Mm -hmm. And it like, we got through, you know, but 
it could have been a whole lot better and I could have had a whole lot more favorable impact on those Marines had I adjusted. The first, gotta say, three months or so, we were down at Norea and it was it was kinetic. You know, every squad that left the wire was going to get into a firefight. Mm-hmm. You knew it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, brief pop shots from, you know, a random farmer that got paid or intimidated into picking up a rifle. And then, you know, more often than not, it was a sustained firefight from anywhere from like three to six or seven hours. Right. You know, you'd, you'd get into it and then it would last all day. QRF yeah. was up regularly. Um, the FOB or the cop, excuse me, was taking contact as well at random points throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, in danger of being overrun or anything, but more of just probing. You know, they wanted to gauge our reactions and yep. stuff. Yep. Uh, and that's another thing that this whole, so in the background, I've got the emotional trauma of dealing with Zach's loss, trying to settle into a new role with the team leaders and not taking that in stride and not adjusting to it. And then I'm now introduced to the actual chess match that goes on on the tactical level between two enemies Mm. uh it's not it's not like it is when you read a book or when you watch a documentary or Mm. when you're doing like that you know it's much more intricate than that tactics are changing no situation is exactly the same and that fluidity um it really tested that creativity that zach was so keen on that's why he did what he did. He anticipated this. He mm. saw this. You know? He was also the glue that held the squad together. So all these issues that I'm having, it just appeared that every decision that I made, I would compare myself to Zach and be like, man, he already had all this figured out. Why is it so much more difficult for me to do it? Mm. So that was another problem. I was always comparing myself to him instead of just focusing on me being better every single chance that I could get. You know, um, yeah, that, that's you, probably that subtle uh, subconscious healing and grieving for him, too. And I know you said you just didn't do it, but it was there. That's what you're saying. It was there and it came out to people. So, um, yeah, please continue. It's just it's, it's an interesting cocktail, you know, and it's it's definitely an overload. You know, because you take all those things and then you factor them into everything that's going on with you physically and mentally and spiritually when mm-hmm. you're in an act in that situation, and not just once or twice, but it's sustained, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we weren't, you know, back at the FOB or back at the COP, excuse me, at, at Maria, you know, we had outposts and stuff that we would go and man. It was kind of seen as like a break, you know, you didn't patrol out of them yeah. or anything. You sat on a main MSR and like you said, made sure that people weren't backfilling IEDs or doing anything shady or anything like that, you know? Sure. Well, right now and then your dude up on post would take contact too, you know, in those small scenarios or in those small, small little enclosures that we had. Um, and so there wasn't really a whole lot of rest or respite from it. Um, and it was just a lot going on, man, you know, yeah. talk about like, like, and this is not a way to garner sympathy or pity at all. Like, you know, like jumping into the fucking deep end with center blocks tied around your feet, you know, yeah. uh, we could happen. We all knew it was a possibility when we signed the contract. So there's no need for, for sympathy or victimhood here. But when you're actually confronted with that and you realize everything that's going on, it's too much at the moment. 
I didn't realize any of this. Well, I shouldn't say any of this, but most of it, I didn't realize it was all happening and I wasn't able to break it down and analyze it like that until I got home mm-hmm. seven You know, like at this point when I'm there, I'm just focused on what's directly in front of me. And every now and then, every now and then something will happen that'll kind of take all these things that are in the background and bring them up to the front a little bit and make me just be like, hmm, okay, now it's all thing. I didn't actually dedicate a whole lot of serious thought to it and critical self-analysis the way that I should have. Yeah, I think that I think that when you're in the time and you're in the place, that's probably, you know, that's your mind doing a self-defense mechanism. That's saying, yeah, we'll have plenty of time to think about that, Stuart, the rest of our life. But we need to get the rest of these motherfuckers home now. That's what we need to do. We need to go out. We need to kill as many of these bastards as we can kill, put them down. And then we need to grab our guys and we need to come home. And that's your mind does that for you. And I think that. You know, we don't have to get too much on a tangent, but a lot of guys that struggle with PTSD now, I think that's what it is. Like your mind knew that that would hurt you. And so it spread load that throughout your brain. So you couldn't, um, you couldn't collect it or recollect it and bring it all back into one because your mind knew what that was going to do to you. So it knows right now what you have to do is you have to spread that out, make it unattainable. So if it comes to mind, you're like, ah, but you're not doing deep thought. It's there. Ah, but it's not all there. So you don't feel it all. When you get home, you start to recollect that stuff. You start to think about it a little on a, on, a, on a more of a deeper level. And I'm not saying all the bad stuff, but the stuff, the stuff that just shatters when, when it happens because of so much going on, sensory overload, and you're talking about on the highest level. Um, and so I think that's what a lot of it is. We're not supposed to recollect that at the time. We're supposed to, we have a mission, but one cog has been removed, the new cog has been in place, and now we have to turn. Um, yeah. And that's right. I think that's right. Um, I, I too tried to do that. Um, um, Matthias Hansen died on the 21st of February, about a weekend or so to our, to our push. I tried to do the same thing. You know, like I had my moment of anger and just pure emotion that came out of me. And then I had my rage where I wanted to kill everybody in that village. Everybody. Um, we even talked about it. We were going to call it an NCO patrol. We were going to go down there and make them pay. And at the end of the day, when cooler minds prevailed a couple hours, you know, later, and we all had this talk, it was like, no, no, we're not going to murder people. We're going to come here. We're going to do this cleanly with honor. And we're going to take that home for them, you know, and that's what we did. And that's what Marines do. And it's what they'll always do. Um, But just my little, my little jump into that is that I think it's right. I think that, Stop and churn because you have all this. You have all this time. You'll figure that out. You figure that part out. Good, bad, or indifferent, you have time to do it where it doesn't impact the lives of your other men. And so I think that's right. Yeah. And there's the, when I say that, it it typically elicits some sort of negative response from people. I don't know exactly who it is. I just see the, you know, the podcast numbers and stuff. But, you know, when I do a poll on whether or not I, you know, people think it's appropriate for us to feel that way for us to have that desire for vengeance. Mm. It's, it's overwhelmingly like, no, that's not right for you to feel that way. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand that. I don't, I, that's people who have that, never been confronted with that situation in my opinion. Right. Acting on it is one thing, but the emotional response. Okay. I don't think that 
I think it's perfectly healthy and perfectly normal. Yeah, I would tell that. those same people, I would say, um, if I walked into your house and I shot your little brother in the face right now and peeled him out, would you not want any negative uh, intention or emotion towards me? Right. Because that's the bond that we have as Marines, hands down. When you have, when you're a squad leader, you're a team leader, those guys that are entrusted to you, it's not entrusted. Their fucking life is entrusted to you, and it's not their choice. And then they yeah. look at you as that mentor, that big brother, that father figure damn near. Your squad leaders looked almost like that way. Um, and when you have that, and that's your family, and oh, by the way, there's 42 of you. And when all 42 of you are dead, it's over. Nobody goes home. So every single time you see a U.S. Marine folded up, put in a box and leaves, that's another one of you that you might not have in the fight tomorrow, or that you absolutely will not have in a fight tomorrow. And, and people that say that that's crazy or that it shouldn't elicit that kind of response purely to me have never been in that in that situation and if you have been in that situation i would beg you to come on my show so that we could talk about that psychology um and and the differences there um yeah uh, yeah so i kind of lost my our our (laughs) our, uh trajectory there but let's just start with um Let's start with your with your first contact as a squad as a squad leader when you get in. Ah, Let's unfold okay. that, unpack that a little bit because that's going to be that first proving grounds to your squad, to your team leaders, and then to your subordinate boot, you know, junior Marines looking up, saying, "Did we do it right? Did we do it wrong? Do they have control?" So walk me through that if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, uh, okay, so in points, all right. Okay, so. Um, arguably one of the most significant moments of my life. Um, and I think that's natural for everybody, but the way that this thing played out, um, you really couldn't have asked for it to go much better. All right. Exactly. And so we, we pushed out from Copneria. It was an early morning patrol and every other squad had already gone out of this and they had all taken contact. So we're all like chomping at the bit, you know, I'm hitting up my platoon commander like every day, sometimes multiple times a day, like, Hey, when are we going to get our chance? When are we going to get our chance? You know? Um, and so it finally came, you know, and I pulled the squad in, I gave him a brief the day before. Um, and you know, we, we bedded down for a bit that night. Uh, very restless sleep as you can imagine now um, now this is like you got the word that you're going out on patrol or you're going out on an attack an attack op or what what kind of op are we doing what kind of mission do we have just a basic patrol up to a local village that's not too far away i want to say it was maybe oh ah i mean it, it couldn't have been more than more than like a few miles away it was out of the reach of our 240s and it was out of visible range from the fob mm-hmm. but it was far away to where if we got in a jam somebody couldn't be there to help us out you know check and you're going I mean, out you're, you're a census or is this uh you know is this patrol to contact is this a census operation is this a presence patrol to saturate the area and deny the enemy freedom of movement you know what i mean like what are we doing right i forget what the actual tasking was um I, you but could, you're not you going could... to attack anything you're going on a no. patrol designated objective that we're going to like, you know, fix and flank or anything like that. No, okay. like over here, we want you to go out there, see if you can find the bad guys, see if the locals know where the bad guys are. So you could call it the contact, a contact patrol probably. Yeah. Okay. Check. Uh, 
so we were like okay um yes do you want us to go talk to locals and stuff that's cool whatever our squad leader just got killed we want to get in a fight that's what we were all thinking mm -hmm. you know so we were all mm -hmm. the same way at this point all right and we left out uh, sometime in early morning i want to say it's around like seven or eight or so blazing heat heat like i've never experienced before um and i remember like it was incredibly surreal so like we you know we light up in the fob i you know i send my uh my request permission to depart and we push out and uh you know we cross over the road in the first wadi and we get into the first field which is you know all tilled just dry dirt and then we see the cornfields and you can see the heat wafting mm. off Kind of like when, you know, when you open up a grill and you can see the heat coming up. And I remember stepping through that and it was just like a furnace wall, oh, yeah. you know, and even in the middle of that, like we got through the cornfield and opened up a little bit more and I could look around and I could see the team that was in front of me and the team that was behind me. And it just hit me that this was actually happening. You know, like it's not training anymore. Yeah real we're finally here after all the shit that we've been through the years of sacrifice and suffering and development and we're finally here and it's not training anymore the gloves are off mm. and it's time to fucking go Fuck you know give me cold chills dog <laughs> right right like i can't just every time i think about that specific moment um it just, it gives me chills all over again, man. Um, but so we had the plan in place before we left. We had scouted the terrain. We had really good maps at the time. And uh, so myself and first team, um, you know, we turned north and we saw the village. It was over to, it was like a small, like linear type of village over to our left-hand side, which would have been the west. Yeah, the west. Um and, and just also... for just for the sake of, of of our listeners, can you kind of, uh, I think I think just about everybody knows what a chisel plow a chisel plow poppy field looks like, but can you speak to the terrain outside of the fields when you're not in a cornfield and you're not in a poppy field? What does the terrain look like to you? So that's so it, it's all it, it's all linear. So if you if you were to look at it from like an overhead perspective it would look like a giant checkerboard, mm -hmm. you know, and the fields alternate, you know, so some of them will be like tilled, crunchy dirt that's about like yay high or so. And then you have the fields that are grown. They have corn, they have, you know, the corn that's like way over your head. And mm -hmm. then next one, you'll have the poppy that's about, you know, waist high or something like that, you know, um, and they just, they alternate. And that's broken up by those checker lines, which are roads that have like, wadis steep sometimes very steep 10 foot deep drainage ditches and sometimes they're a whole lot smaller than that they're a whole lot shallower mm -hmm. um, and so it's this this up and down if you're in the dry fields you know which makes you look like you're a drunk man walking around with all this tactical gear on and then you like disappear all the way down into a wadi and you come right back up you cross over a road hopefully you don't get blown up and then you go down again and then it's right back into the fields you know yeah yep. um yep. check vegetation um trees not a ridiculous amount but sparse vegetation lines those roads from time to time yep and compounds uh made out of mud brick that's thousands of years old and that we were about to find out can withstand everything up to and including a 50 caliber machine gun yeah all of um, it yeah right which is amazing you know yeah, we have it all is this amazing 
technology and engineering that just gets destroyed by our stuff. And then we go to a place that's thousands of years old and it's like, meh, 50 cal, whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah I shot, I shot several law rockets in Marja and to no avail to a big boom. You know, like I'm shooting a 60, what is it? 64 millimeter rocket at you uh, or two, whatever it is, it's big. And it just a little bit. And then they fire right back, man. Those, you're not joking. All right. All right. So you're moving through the fields. And you're taking right. it all in. You're, you're for the first time, and I think any squad leader or team leader, uh, probably even you know uh, regular infantrymen, riflemen has has done that at some point when they hit out there, and it's like holy shit, that we here, we ain't coming no more. We are right here. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's hitting you. Go from there. So we, the plan was there was a wadi that ran. Um, parallel to the village that's in a narrow like north and north and south facing kind of like strip mm-hmm. all right so two lines of houses with you know a road down the middle of it right and there's more fields so we're moving up through those fields and everything we see the wadi and the plan was to set second team or point team in along that wadi because it kind of veered off in an l shape right so they're going to take the corner of that mm-hmm. and like an isolate um the village or prevent anything from coming uh, from other directions. Right. Well, second team moves in from North to South and goes into the village and tries to, you know, ascertain any information that they can. All right. Really. So we accomplished the, the mission that we were out there to do, but what we really wanted to do was kind of bait them into seeing, Hey, a smaller unit there. That's a pretty mm-hmm. good for five Marine scouts, you know, and uh, that's exactly what they did. It worked. Very well. One of the very few times that I can actually say that about a plan that we came up with, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, but we set in, and then uh, second team went inside, and not too long after that, um, there it was. You know, the first enemy machine gun burst ripped right overhead, and from there, it was just... Now, are you, in, are you in the second team moving up with them, or you set in with the first team on the Wadi? No, I'm set in with the first team in the Wadi. Okay. Um, that's really where I was hoping that the action would, would come from, you know, mm-hmm. and it turned out to be that way. Thank God. Um, looking back on it, if second team had gotten hit inside there and we had had to rush into an urban environment, not knowing anything about it, that could have been really messy, especially yeah, yeah. back of being killed. Okay. So, um, so, so I understand it right. As the second team moves up, your team at the Wadi takes a burst. No. So they get into the village. Okay. Starting to push south. Um, we're already set in at that apex of the wadi. Yep. And that's when we take the burst. Okay. Yep. Okay. Check. The initial team, we respond back with this overwhelming fuck you fire. You know, it's not like in training where we're assigning rates and everybody's sticking to the book, like, oh, okay, my little burst. Like, nope. Everybody's just full bore cyclic fucking rate destroying everything that they possibly can mm-hmm, all right mm-hmm. which i think is normal too most of the time in that that first firefight just from speaking to other marines about it that's everybody's kind of first twitch reaction yep go mm-hmm. uh, so corporal smith and his team come out from the village right behind us we're screening them with our fire and they set up in the wadi over to my right okay so i'm center i've got turnip seeds team over here Smith's team over here and the enemies, they just plop down right in the middle of our now L shape. 
where we have interlocked. Beautiful, beautiful. So it turned out really well. Uh, not so much based on skill of my part, but mainly suggestions from my team leaders and the stupidity of the end. Um, well, that's self-denigrating though, because you're you're already playing this game of cat and mouse, right? You're already playing this tactical game of of chess, not checkers, and you're making deliberate decisions to draw on a five-man team one way or another, and then you had support from both sides. That makes sense to me, and that's that's beautiful. So don't denigrate, man. <laughs> We do that too much as, as Marines and service members. So, yeah, well, so, it, I mean, it, it played out, it played out very well, you know, and I remember, I, I know the response of the Marines, um, the, and, and there was a few of those like, Oh shit, crazy moments, you know, but I don't ever really think that we were in a point where we thought that it was getting out of hand, you right. know, there were calls, some close rounds ripping by, um, and our corpsman, actually, uh, Doc Walker, he was with second team. And so when they came out of the wadi, they had to cross a little bit of, or when they came out of the village, they had to cross a little bit of open ground, right? So as they're running, he takes a round in his rifle, like right above the chamber, right? So we oh, get we out of the wadi and everybody's doing their thing and we're starting to settle down and dial in a little bit. You know, the cyclic rate has died off. People are changing mags they need to. And we're starting to communicate, you know, one guy saying, Hey, I've got a target over here, you know, 200 meters. He's behind this stack of hay. He's moving your way or something. And it passes into the next guy's like, got it, bam, putting him down, you know, and it just moves down the line. Guys are communicating the way they should be. And they're taking advantage of targets of opportunity. Beautiful. Right. I look over at doc. I'm like, doc, why aren't you firing, man? You know, and he holds up his <laughs> right around right in the chamber. Like, Holy shit. You know? Sweet miss. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh you got lucky motherfucker yeah and um so that went on for i want to say a solid a good couple of hours man probably like two or three or so now um, were they continuing to reinforce their enemy element as it was getting you know uh yeah whittled down so we didn't we didn't know it at the time, but the fire after our initial like fuck you volley went out, you know, it slacked off for a little bit. We had gained fire superiority and that was very clear. That yeah. was like instantly clear, okay? But as we started to kind of scale it back a little bit and started thinking about ammo conservation, we were communicating and stuff. Yeah. Yes. They were they were bringing in fresh elements. Um it would be later confirmed after the fact you know, via our air assets that were overhead, that they had a pre-staged Aiden litter team and they had an initial element um, that, you know, initiated contact. And then they had a reinforcing element that came in. Okay. Uh, their Aiden litter team was working overtime. Oh, dude, they're the no joke. And, and I would say something about that. I know, you know, when I was there, whatever, that same time, a little bit before you, it was a psychological game that I don't think they knew they were playing. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But the psyops on putting people down, having eyes on a dead enemy next to a weapon, and then getting there and it's gone. I'm talking brass is gone. Their bodies were gone. You could see where they washed blood off. They did not want us to know who we killed, how many we killed, or when we killed them, how we killed. They didn't want, want us to know anything. And I'll say this. Um, it fucking worked. You know, because I would be enraged getting up to a guy that I knew I put down in an exact position, and it's just wet sand. Maybe I'll yeah. maybe I'll link or two. 
where they missed, you know, police call because he fought from that position for several bursts. There should be hundred, a hundred links and rounds there and there's nothing right. And the gun is gone. And so anytime we were able to close on them fast enough to get their weapons in their bodies was like a privilege, which didn't happen much because, you know, if your normal engagements, 200 yards to, to 350 or 400, they have that much time to get their litters in, get those guys and get them out of there. And, uh, and that can play hell on, on a friendly elements. Um, it, it played hell on hell on my squad psychology, killing them. Right. So whether that was meant for that reason, or if it was just more religious based, get them off the field so we can have our ceremony and, and it be done, uh, which is what I think it was more of. But if it, if not, they were smart. It was a smart way to go about it. Um, I, it, it was probably a mix of both. I mean, obviously, they're a religiously based force, you know, and we all do. At the same time, if you look at a lot of their tactics, it's plain to see that at least someone in their hierarchy has studied history in the past. The NVA were notorious for doing the exact same thing in sure. Vietnam. You know, sure. they learn from other insurgent forces and they use some of the same tactics the same way that we look to other militaries and did the same thing which adds another layer to that chess match that absolutely you're talking. absolutely um and we we weren't going to get that satisfaction today either you yeah. know um but you know so as it went on and as it progressed um you know we maneuvered a little bit we utilized that wadi and we weren't going to break away from that. Like it was a defensible position. We had interlocking fields of fire. We knew we were putting them down because guys were talking about it, and actually seeing it mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. And why would we abandon that position? We shouldn't, right? Me being a young squad leader, eventually I decided to deviate from that. And thankfully events played out that kept us from completing that. But uh, so we, I decided to take uh, Lance Corporal Turnip Seeds team. Uh, the second team that had initially set in the Wadi, and we moved down a little bit. We were just going to hold Smith's team where they were, and we were going to flank around and just try and clean them out completely. I wanted to be walking over dead bodies by the time we were done. Yeah. 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 And so we, we started that movement, and then a friendly cat element came up, uh, and we were like, oh, okay, the big guys are here. The big guns are here. Maybe we shouldn't do this. And so we pull back a little bit. Um, and there's a little bit of fiasco trying to mark the ground for air assets that came in. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I sprinted back. I tossed a smoke grenade out there trying to mark our position. Um, and uh, the birds didn't see it. Um, or whatever asset that we had overhead, we were just told ISR. Sure. Um, they- didn't get it, you know. So we had one of our A and A soldiers uh, at the time. He had this bright baby blue shirt on underneath his, you know, old 1970s style chest rig, and he took that bitch off and started waving it in the air like this. Hey, dude, whatever works. It balls of steel, man. I gotta hand it to that guy, you know. Um, but they eventually, they eventually got our position, and um, you know, my RTO was lobbing 203 rounds. Uh, to mark the enemy position um, and eventually our cat element was the one that actually dealt with the air assets and got that called in so instead of us completing that flanking maneuver we came back and as a squad bounded back by teams across the open ground to be right up next to the village just to try and meet our men safe Check. Um, and uh, as I'm moving with that second team 
you know, I, I look over to my right, we're all hauling ass, you know, and this is several hours into it. So we're all smoked at this point. Oh, yeah. An ass, and I look over and that same A&A soldier with the bright baby blue shirt on, he's got his rifle over here like this, just like popping off rounds as he's running. Like he's not even looking where they're going, man. Approved, like, approved uh, <laughs> Afghani tactic right there. <laughs> yeah. The reason I say that I, I recorded with, um, I recorded with the machine uh nick lavery oda uh if you don't know you need to get on it this dude the, the dude is a machine anyway uh he got shot in one of his put one of his pumps by a guy doing that he's trying to recover a vehicle that's down and starting to have rounds cook off inside of it and his guys in there his team is in there and there's this guy. So he starts pursuing this guy, puts one of them down. He said, the other guy is running backwards. And he said he was using his thumb, bop, bop, bop with it over his shoulder. And he takes one. Um, you see, he thought he, yeah, anyway, I, we can talk offline about it, but approved, approved Afghani firing tactic there. Uh, field tested is what they say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, luckily nobody else, was behind him except for the bad guys. So that's right. Thank God. Know. Right. <laughs> um, but we got there and then, uh, you know, the bird came in and I'm still drawing a blank as to what exactly what platform it was that I remember being down in the Wadi with my guys, you know, and, and we weren't firing too much at that point. Yeah, um, yeah. Several hours into it. But when that thing screeched overhead and when we saw the munition hit and that explosion we felt that that shock wave from it man like it was just i've never felt anything like that before in my life man that kind of raw concussive power you know mm. it complete assertion of dominance yeah absolutely uh, absolutely um, i felt the same way the first time i saw high mars hit and we used them in uh the opening days of master rock i had a saw gunner shot and we called in um high mar rockets and two of them hit a building and i swore it was like the hand of god just just reached down through the clouds and made shit go away and um dominance man power power and dominance and i'm sure it sounds like maybe that was a little bit bigger of a munitions if it was dropped by a by um friendly air so that's man that's an amazing thing and it's not something like you're happy to experience you're happy that people are dead that are chasing you but it's one of those like you said just raw power and 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 shock at something that could be um <laughs> dropped so close to you let's say that yeah yeah well, we were close um i, I want to say in the vicinity of like i don't know probably like 800 meters or so like for for a a munition that big like you're gonna feel it at that range yeah man uh, you know yeah. um and, and i could be off a few hundred meters plus or minus on that you know granted this is about 13 years removed right but right <laughs> you remember it being very close um and there's there's something to be said about that though you know there's the question that comes up sometimes when you talk to you know people that have never experienced this before and they wonder or they ask if they have the balls to do so like what would make a human being want to go and do this like why you know like is there something wrong with you that makes you want to go and, and actually kill people and here's the thing like it, it's the physical act of killing someone 
is not that's not what we like relish mm. you know what what it is is it's that pure form of competition you know it's not like it's not like playing a football game or competing in athletics or something like that it's it's that next phase up it's that universe that is separated because of the consequences and how significant they are you know mm-hmm. then you factor in this unique culture that's unlike anything that any of us have ever been raised in has completely different set of values than the rest of the country and the effect the developmental effect that that has on us mm. it's caused by hardship and suffering and the knowledge you gain the critical knowledge you gain of yourself and of everyone around you and going on that journey and then it culminates in that the, the most severe form of competition the validation that comes from that that is what we relish yeah that what attracted us in the first place yeah it's that um it's that affirmation of doing things correctly in the ultimate arena that's mm-hmm. what it is and couple that with um you know 9-11-2001 cemented cemented a lot of us in the past that we would go and the feelings that we would have and then it called to us the war called to me like from my gut like this mm-hmm. is what you are here for this this arena that's coming in your life is where you're supposed to be and it just gnawed and called and gnawed and called and then what then you're there then you're in the ultimate arena and you didn't know who was going to be with you but there you knew somebody would be with you and you knew a group of guys would be with you and then you're there and like you said you're on that patrol and you're ready to go and then the enemy wants to take a bite at you um and you get to unleash you know all the sacrifices and years of training and the fact that we had females jump out of the twin towers uh and their last shred of decency holding their skirts down so people wouldn't see them that's what we fought for and that's when you get in it that's what it is right there it is that competition but it's also a fuck you you don't come to the united states of america in any way shape or form and us forget about it we'll be 18 years in still coming at your door and somebody else will raise your family because you wanted to come pick this fight and and that 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 changed a lot of thousands of us i don't know how many but many thousands of us got called to this place um, 10 years prior to when we got there, eight years prior to when we got there, 13, 15 years prior to when we got there. Um, and, and, and that calling came out of a day. Um, I'm not saying we wouldn't be there or that I wouldn't have been there without that day, but that day changed a lot of people, you know, yeah. um, and it called to a lot of people. Yeah. So, no, I don't think that's crazy. I don't think that... You know, people ask me that, why would you want to do that? And it's like, uh, man, you're in an arena where if you don't give every ounce of your being to the guy to the left and the right of you, somebody doesn't come home. That's the arena you're in. And then when you succeed and you win the day in that arena, there's no feeling like it. You can't replicate it. Um, Good, bad, or indifferent. I really don't care what people think about the way I feel about war. Uh, If you were there with me, I care about what you think. If you weren't there with me, I could give two shits what you think. But I want to put this there for the young guys that have that calling now. I want Mm -hmm. them to know, you know. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's an amazing amazing emotion or sensation that can come across there. So um, take me to when you walk in from that patrol. 
so you're gonna, you're gonna enter friendly lines and there's gonna be something different about every single person that was with you yeah yeah and it's perfect segue into this man it was it, it i liken it looking back on it you know i liken it to i imagine this is what like a gladiator would feel coming out of his first match mm-hmm. and having you know, with the rose petals falling down, the crowd's chanting his name, and he has that moment mm-hmm. where his trajectory in life is forever altered. Yep. He will never be the same ever again. There's a permanent mark left deep inside that's never going to go away. Mm. You know, every man that's been through combat before has that in some way, shape, or form. Um, now, for me at the time, you know, being quite quite arrogant, quite egotistical. Um, I kind of held on to it, you know, um, the rest of the squad was, was elated as well. You know, we, you know, we got back and we ground our gear and everything like that. And, uh, you know, I went into the COC with my rifle and the cat team that had been out there supporting us and stuff. They were, you know, their, their section leader was in there as well you know so it was handshakes all around it was congratulations like well fucking done this is your first combat action as Test. a squad yeah and it be like a six hour fucking firefight which <laughs> as they would tell me when we went in there we were actually outnumbered you know there was all in all there was a full to squad of of the enemy out there about 12 or 13 cats including their aiden litter team you know we were rolling with eight plus a corpsman sounds like um, they were outnumbered yeah, <laughs> like it felt great to hear that, you know, and it also yeah. felt great. My platoon commander was like, "Hey, you know, we didn't go and do the battle damage assessment that we should have because we dropped, you know, uh, munitions." Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so we should have gone and done a battle damage assessment, but another squad was called out to take care of that. Um, we were just we were done, man, um, and uh, so we got in there and they told us like, "Hey." Uh, you guys were outnumbered. There was about, you know, 12 or 13 cats from what our air assets could see. They saw the Aiden litter team pulling away about eight dudes throughout the course of all of this, you know, so that's pretty high percentage of enemy casualties. And we had one heat case. We felt pretty good about that, Boom. you know? Um, and, you know, Sergeant Lutz, the guy that was, that was going to take over our squad that, you know, pushed forth, pushed his reenlistment through, uh, you know, he, he shook my hand afterwards and, and he told the squad, the whole squad, he was like, you guys can go home and tell Sergeant Walter's family that you fucking got him now. Like, good fucking job, you know. From a, a dude that's that's been on multiple combat deployments to say that to us and to have this level of validation mm. in it was priceless. Yeah. Uh, and it there's no other feeling like it, man. That, that feeling of true achievement mm. in this arena. Um, it was unlike anything else that I've experienced, you know? Yeah. yeah um, that's a fact. You can't replicate it. I've spent like the last 13 years trying to, and you can't, you can't, you can't, <laughs> I jumped out of planes. Uh, can't, um, you're not supposed to, man. I, I don't think you're supposed to. I think it's such a grave I've said this before, but I'll say it again because I believe in it. If we get to the point where everybody comes home from combat and it's not changed and everything's just fine and, you know, uh, we go about our days, then then we've lost this whole thing anyway. If we can just go over there and decimate people and not struggle from it, not come home and think about it, not come home and wonder, um, then we we lose already. But our services have 
very distinct way of keeping our honor clean. And, um, and that's something that everybody should be proud of that does it right. 100%. Absolutely. You know, and I don't think that there has to be, and you know, it, I did not stop along the way to scoop up a medical degree. I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything about PTSD or anything like that, but I do think that there's a, a good number of us that come home from combat and we don't have PTSD. I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that either. You know, no, that's, that's not a question from that. Why would you want to do this? You know, and then it kind of bleeds into like, there's an expectation that we have to feel sorry for ourselves or be broken just because we took yeah. life. Not the case at all. It doesn't mean that we're psychopaths and that we enjoyed that. Okay. But it also doesn't mean that we should be expected to be victims. Right. Right. Yep. There's I totally agree. Crafted. I mean, it's not like we were forced against our will to do this. We all Fact. chose willingly. Fact. Right. Victimhood will kill faster or it will kill slower, but more effectively than any weapon of war. Fact fact and i think that's what we're looking at with our country not to not to get political but we're looking at a country who's who's victimized themselves over the last decade maybe decade plus and we've gotten to a point where that's what's expected oh we got to feel bad or oh so sorry you've been hurt and it's like no dude this is, when i said best job i ever had i literally meant best job i ever fucking had best yeah. emotions i've ever fucking had in my life were at war with boys my age um mm -hmm taking a fight to an enemy for people that we'll never meet and that we'll never uh, even seek admiration from. That's just what we did. We did that for us. Yeah. Um, and, and it, and it will change you. And I think changes most of us for the better. Some of us not. Um, and I'm not afraid to say when I came home, I had trouble, man. I, had, I struggled. Um, I struggled drinking, um, end up in a, you know, a puddle of tears thinking about some of my dudes. Uh, I had these emotions that I just couldn't control, um, anger and rage and, um, just, uh, and I, I'm not convinced that's PTSD guys. Um, and maybe yeah. it is maybe in, in some part, but I think there's a lot more tied to our brains and, uh, and with explosions to our brains and shock waves that hit our brains that mess our chemicals and our hormones and our, uh, our emotional, uh, decision-making. I think a lot of that comes from, um, you know, shock and uh, shock to the brain and waves to the brain and, and things of that nature. Um, but if you're one of those guys that struggles, there's no, there's no shame in saying that either. You struggle. Cool. We get through it together. You didn't struggle. Outstanding. Let's use you as a test bed to show these other guys that that's right too. You know, there's right. no, there's no wrong. I wouldn't, I don't pity anybody on either side. I just say it's something we got to do. I struggled for a couple of years. I started talking about it. I started having my show, having these cathartic interviews, having, you know, writing the book and putting it down. And it was, it was help for me. You know, that didn't take away the rage all the way. It didn't take away some of the things that I deal with, but it 100% helped. And, you know, after a period of years of doing that, you know, of doing these things, you could start to put things in order. You can start to, you know, move past whatever it is that's hanging you up or, or sticking you up. And if you don't have trouble, outstanding. Do what, yeah. you know, do what Stuart's doing and pass the knowledge, pass the word to the next war fighters that, hey, don't make yourself a victim. 
I don't give a shit what the country's going through or what, what culture has hit the American waves. When the guys were going through Fallujah, it said the Marines are at war. America's at the mall. Don't worry about what America has to say about you. Worry about the warrior that beat your chest and say, I went and did that fucking right. And yep. now I'm back. And now I get to reap the benefits of being back with my family and living a full life. Um, not, not second guessing or disregarding what happened over here. Not trying to pick that apart, but try to show people, hey, this is what you have. This is what we have coming and we can be better at it together, but we got to get it out there. And that's right. what I love about what you're doing. Um, I think we could kind of talk about the rest of your deployment day by day and, and, and take it as it goes. But I want to kind of move move forward. Um, you have you have a book that's under DOD review right now. Um, and I'd like you just a just a, a quick little note about the book, what's to come from the book, what we can expect uh, once it's out of review and um, and gets to the stores. Tell me what it's about. So the I've been working. I started working on this uh, early 2017 um, after I got out. Um, I EAS in uh, 2016, so just shy of a decade or so. Um, and as I was writing it, it, it was kind of like it was kind of like you said, you know, and that that victimhood trap. Um, I fell into that actually, believe it or not. So at the time I'm just out of the infantry, which is a completely indifferent culture, as we've mentioned several times, um, struggling to kind of figure out what my purpose is now, you know, beyond being a husband and a father, mm. um, my wife had just given birth to our second child. Um, and I was working a, I wouldn't say a cushy, but a corporate job. Uh, it was a good job, you know, but it, it still, it wasn't really anything more than this was my first confrontation with working a job for the sole purpose of paying the bills mm. without form of actual personal gratification for it or development for it. Sure. I was trading for dollars and that's it, you know? So there's a whole lot going on. Um, and a lot of the unhealthy coping mechanisms that I had established in the Marine Corps, alcohol being cheap among them, uh, exacerbated because of my failure to deal with my emotions. Um, now, after Marja, I had realized that I was, it was glaringly obvious to me the level of emotional intelligence and emotional control and interpersonal communication that was required to be a successful squad leader. So as rough as that deploy deployment was on those fronts, that's what I took away from it, you know, and, and I made it a point to completely reinvent who I was as a man and as a squad leader moving forward, mm -hmm. you know, um, and that really, again, that was another trajectory altering decision as I moved through the rest of my career. So as I exit the service, I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of the way that I left because I didn't drop my pack. Mm -hmm. you know? still went on field ops. I still did everything I could to pull the squad leaders that had no combat experience and, and, and spend time with them and pour into them and teach them, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and there's other things too, that we can get into that I was, that I was proud of that I did during that time. But in the aftermath of it all writing is what helped me not 
necessarily heal from it, but at least make take something that was so jumbled up and chaotic on the inside and map it out from start to finish. Make something of it, yep. Oh, okay, like once I actually laid everything out and then I saw the emotion that was put into it, the bitterness that was put into it, in part because of the reasons that I got out of the service, it really did kind of help me start moving forward. And then the decision eventually came to, you know, like I think that it would actually help if other people could see this, if other people could read this and they could understand a little bit more because Hollywood, the media, our politicians, our service heads, recruiting campaigns, they're not painting an accurate picture at all. Um, And barring actually serving yourself, that's the next best thing. If you want to understand something, find somebody that's actually had the experience and ask the hard questions that need to be asked. Yeah. So that's kind of what it started out as. And then as I moved through other, other jobs and whatnot, I did some time contracting um, over in Kabul before things ended disastrously over there. Um, oh. And that's how I finished my first draft of it. So it was more of a full circle kind of deal. Um, and in the book, which is entitled Savages, I don't focus too much on, you know, the typical flow of things. There's a little brief period about boot camp, a little brief period about SOI. Uh, and then 75% of it is observing this culture and the specific values that make it different <laughs> and observing that from my perspective but in the form of the leadership that I had men like Zach Walters and the impact that they had on us. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Establishing that culture. I've read a lot of really good books about <laughs> the, and like, you know, Excuse me. Um, like David Hackler, one of my favorites. Um, and, and there's others out there as well, but I haven't read anything where somebody straight up says, these are the infantry values. So that's what I did. I defined those values. Mm. I said, this is different right here from my perspective. Now, perspectives vary and experiences vary. But I think if we can understand this collectively, then it can kind of start to answer a little bit more of that why. You know, what's the bug that makes somebody want this, mm. right? Well, mm-hmm. the values. And you see how vastly different it is than American society. You see how different that it is than the rest of the services. Like, okay. I get that a little bit now. Even if I don't like it, I kind of understand. Sure. You know, hope that understanding that will lead to a, a a better consensus on what I believe that our legacy as a fighting generation should be. Because it's not nation building. It's not protection. We're not robots either. Okay? We're savages. Plain and simple. Hmm. And I define those clearly. Um, and... I hope that that's what it accomplishes. I hope that we, in our time, with all of these tools that we have available that no other generation before us has had, we get to define how we're remembered. Mm-hmm. Not to say that we're better than anybody else, but just to identify our unique character and our very small part of our country's history. Right on, man. Well, fuck, you make me want to go buy it right now we need the dod to hurry up and do whatever review they're doing so we can get this knowledge out that's the way i feel about it Hell yeah well look man it's been shit we're over two hours we had a we've had a great conversation 
and uh and i look forward to bringing you back in we'll uh we'll reconvene again there's 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 much more that i'd like to pick out of that uh that marja deployment and then again i'd like to i'd like to touch on the book when it's ready um so definitely something for the viewers i will be having Stuart blackwell back um Hopefully in short notice, uh, get him back out there to you guys and get this book out there to you guys. Um, before we end, why don't you touch a little bit on, uh, on your podcast, tell people where they can find it, uh, what it's about, what it shows, what it talks about, and, uh, and then we'll wrap it from there. Okay, so um, the Warrior Legacy podcast available on Apple and Spotify, um, That's this is where I haven't gotten into the interview phase yet, but it's taken a lot of concepts from – uh, the book and it's putting those out there and explaining them the best that I can in a manner that I hope everybody can understand. You know, mm. I do my best relate it to um, situations that all of us kind of confront on a day-to-day basis. There's a lot about fatherhood in it. You know, it follows from that time being a young infantryman full of piss and vinegar and fire to now where I'm at as a father mm-hmm. and seeing changes with the seasons of life and how I've taken those lessons and applied them to who I am today. Um, yes, yes. I was not the man that I was when I got out of the Marine Corps. Eventually I hit a point in my life to where I realized that if I kept drinking and kept feeling sorry for myself, it was going to cause irreparable damage to my children. Yep. My wife probably wouldn't have stayed with me and I, Looking back on it, I can't blame her. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there was nothing violent or abusive about my behavior, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't detrimental. Sure. You know, talk about setting the example for a household. All right. And on top of that, my wife was with me for every single deployment that I went on. I was gone for the first 60% of our marriage, 60% of that 10 years. And she stuck it out with me, yeah. you know? So eventually I hit the wake up call. And that's when I started getting my life right. Um, got back in the gym, started getting back in shape, and I started living for purpose instead of for pleasure. Mm. And when this book actually started to come to fruition, and I actually got signed with a publisher, Tactical 16, by the way, they put out a lot of uh, veteran-friendly books. Shout out. Yep, I would definitely check those guys out if you're if you're looking to get something published. Um that's when I had to figure out a way to get this message out because I believe in the message. Okay. Mm. Any gain that comes from the work is of secondary importance to me, Mm. but I believe in the message and I, I know that people can benefit from it. And the podcast is a way to bridge that message into everyday life as best as I can as a husband, as a father, and as someone that is progressing through the different phases as a man. Oh yeah. Hell yeah, I've already checked it out, guys. I'm caught up. Warrior Legacy Podcast, or is it Leg- It's Warrior Legacy, right? Warrior Legacy yep. Podcast, guys. Check it out. Uh, Stuart Blackwell, thank you for coming on, man. I appreciate the time, and I look forward to our next chat, brother. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me here. This has been a great experience, brother. If you're a vet, find this guy, all right? You have a responsibility to tell your story. Look him up. A choice is not chances, all right? 
Hey, I appreciate that, man. Appreciate that. All right, guys, until next time. Hey, just listen, if you took anything out of this, you took anything away, something that made your heart throb, something that you know needs to go out to the to, to the community, put it out, man. Hit that share button. Follow Stu, Stuart's uh, podcast. Hit that share button. Let the people know. The people that want to know need to know. Um, and we don't want to keep that from them. So until next time, guys, Choices Not Chances. Well, that concludes this episode. Thanks for listening to Choices Not Chances podcast. Please share, like, and subscribe wherever you listen or watch our podcast. You can also follow us on social media at Choices Not Chances podcast. Thanks, and have a great day. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger. We have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking a building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a funny. Yeah. Yeah.